It's a good day to be together. It is the first of the week, and God has called us to come together to stir one another up to love and good works. We're grateful for the presence of all who are here. I'm thankful for this great number. I expected more of you to be traveling. I'm thankful to have you here uh, with me personally. Uh, it's an encouragement to me. I know that some of you still will be traveling, as is our intent as well. I know some of our members are out traveling. I was a little bit shocked driving past some of the the larger churches on the way in, how empty their parking lots were today. I don't know if they had services yesterday or what happened, but it was a little shocking to me not to have any of the traffic I normally uh, come through that are leaving from their churches as we're coming in to begin ours a little bit later today. But I am grateful for your being here. It is such a blessing to be together. For those who are online with us as well, what a great uh, time this is. God has called us to this purpose. I'm thankful to be here and sharing that with you. Some of you who are over 40 will probably remember a time before a podcast when there was this thing called radio, and there was a gentleman who had a program, you may remember Paul Harvey, who would talk about typically famous people or famous events, and he would uh, tell a little bit more, and he would usually end by saying, and that is the rest of the story. That's the way I view Hebrews chapter 11. Most of you know I, I love the book of Genesis, I spent a lot of time doing studies from that book. And Genesis sets up some stories for us that really there's more we'd like to know and we just don't get it in Genesis. But as we get into Hebrews 11, we begin to see some details about those stories that flesh out what was going on and what God had planned. And so we get the rest of the story. And what's amazing about these texts that we looked at that Mike read for us from Hebrews 11 is this concept of resurrection from someone as early as Abraham, who really had not a whole lot of information to go on, yet he had the promise of God that Isaac, his son, would be the son of promise. And as God had tested him to go up and sacrifice his son, the text tells us that he concluded that God was able to raise him even from the dead. Not that Abraham had ever seen anything like that. There's something else in the Hebrews 11 text that's interesting. As we get down in verse 35, as we're looking at these people who by faith had believed in things that would happen after their death is the point of those texts, that, that Abraham knew that Isaac could be brought back from the dead if God needed to do that to keep his promise, that Isaac was bless, blessing Jacob and Esau about things that would come after Isaac was gone because he believed in what would continue after his death, that even Joseph had made uh, uh, arrangements for his bones to be carried up to the promised land because he was so sure of that promise of God that they would go to the promised land. He wanted to be buried there among his people. Then we look at verse 35. And speaking of this concept of this faith that believes in things beyond what we can grasp here, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, this idea of a better resurrection. But this is the rest of the story as we see it in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to really focus on this concept of resurrection as it's visible all through the Bible. We think of resurrection very clearly. We think of Jesus. We think of the things that he taught. But it really wasn't absolutely a new concept. He brought it to light. He brought clarity to it. He's the one who promised to be able to do it and showed the power that God has. But this is a subject that goes back as old as the Bible is. And I want to begin to kind of show that to you. Resurrection as a fact is present in every Bible age after the garden. That's an interesting thing to think about that. Resurrection as a fact is present in every Bible age after the garden. In the garden, it wasn't necessary. They had access to the tree of life. They weren't supposed to die. But because of sin, death entered in. But as soon as it did, 
and the consequences where they were going to be kicked out of the garden, this hope of life after death, resurrection, is present right away. So I want us to kind of analyze that and think about the patriarchs like, like uh, Adam and like Abraham had some notion at least of a resurrection. Adam and Eve, if you'll go back to Genesis 2 and 3, they were told that in the day they ate of the tree of life, they would die. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, that was the instruction. God uh, put them in the garden to tend and keep. Verse 16 of chapter 2 of Genesis, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But in verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And yet, after this death, after they're kicked out of the garden, where life is for them, there is some hope of life. Uh, We'll read in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. To Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You're going to die. I told you you would die. You're going to die. Turns out that it's going to be a slower process than uh, they had originally perhaps understood. It wasn't an immediate death, but they are, death was the result of their eating from that tree. However, in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 3, the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out. He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, the tree of life somehow is still there. There's still access to it, but the access has been guarded, has been blocked by this sword and by these angels. Yet the hope of having life again has not been taken away from Adam and Eve. So in the garden, there's still some aspect of there's a possibility of life after this death and being kicked out. But in Abel, already in Genesis chapter 4, this gets fleshed out a little bit more. Perhaps not as fully as we would like in Genesis 4. But after Cain kills Abel, in chapter 4, verse 9, the Lord says to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? But in verse 10, God says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I know where your brother is. I know what has happened. Your brother is still speaking to me. In fact, Hebrews 11 makes that very clear, that he being dead still speaks. The image we get in Genesis is blood speaking up from the ground. There's something more to life than just the physical body. There's something even in the blood, as pictured in Genesis 4, that continues to have a relationship with God, even though he can't have a relationship with Cain anymore. That physical relationship has been cut off by Cain. And yet he continues to talk to God, and yet he continues to speak to those who are following God. We've got Cain's, we've got Abel's words in Hebrews 11, and we've got uh, Abel speaking to God after his death. And so there's at least some hint of life after death. With the first physical death in the Bible is this first little hope, this glimmer of life after death for the faithful. That's exactly what's being pictured here with Cain and Abel, the faithful and the unfaithful. The faithful still speaks after being dead, after being killed. Then we have Abraham and Isaac, what we saw intimated in Hebrews chapter 11. It's interesting if you go to that story in Genesis 22, we'll read just the first eight verses there. Look at the language that Abraham uses. We get the the rest of the story, as we talked about it, Hebrews 11, shows us what was going on in Abraham's mind, but we can almost figure that out by reading this. 
Genesis 22, 1 through 8. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. <laughs> what a horrible moment for a father. <laughs> As the child is beginning to realize, we forgot something, Dad. <laughs> and the dad knows, no, we didn't. <laughs> it's you. And yet... As Abraham's going off into the mountain with Isaac, he tells the servants, we'll be back after we go worship. That's a strange thing to say when he knows what he's going up to do. Now, we might think it's a father protecting his son, but Hebrews 11 says he had already concluded that God's going to bring this child back. And so he went, trusting in God's promise. We also see that he told uh, uh, Isaac, God will provide a sacrifice. I'm not going to sacrifice you, although he was ready. What he knew that God had provided was Isaac as the sacrifice, and he was right. But in his mind, somehow, he's seeing another way out. And so based only on the promise of God, I think this is an important thing. All Abraham had was God's promise, but it was enough for him to conclude that God was able to raise Isaac up even from the dead. He just knew that God said, in Isaac, your descendant will be called. And so he had to bring Isaac back doesn't matter what Abraham does. As long as Abraham's faithful to God, God will be faithful to his promise. And so he's ready to, to kill his own son in sacrifice. And of course, we know how that story ended. But the conclusion was that God could do more than Abraham was able to see. And then with all of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob specifically, every time that they are buried, their deaths are described as being gathered to his people. That's a strange way to describe someone dying. <laughs> unless you believe those people are gathered somewhere else. There's some notion of this fact that there's still something going on after the physical death. They're being gathered to their people. Uh, each of those texts, if you'll read through there, as, as, Isaac is, uh, as Abraham is buried, uh, Isaac and, and his brother come together, and Isaac and Ishmael come together, and it says Abraham is, is gathered to his people. Then as Isaac's buried, Jacob and Esau come together, but it says Isaac was gathered to his people. And then as Jacob is handing out the blessings on all of his children, it says that he wants to be buried where his family was buried. And then finally it says he's gathered to his people. And all of that has some notion, at least, of something going on beyond life. Even Jesus told the Sadducees, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob long after their physical deaths. So there's a notion in the Old Testament of resurrection. In fact, Hebrews 11, as it's teaching us the rest of the story, we learn something about why they, uh, they understood this life after death. What were they looking for? Hebrews 11, verse 13, They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. What good is a promise after you're dead? Unless you understand there's something after death. 
They embraced them and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Those who say such things declare plainly they seek a homeland. If they had called to mind that homeland from which they had come, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. So they, uh, they went to their deaths. They were gathered to their people seeking a homeland that wasn't from here. So all of this is an indication that they had some notion there was something beyond their physical life. I just think it's fascinating that we, we may not see as clearly resurrection in the Old Testament, but the idea is clearly there. We even see this concept not only among the patriarchs, but in the law and the prophets. Well, Enoch is part of the patriarchal period, but he's referred to, revealed in the law and the prophets. And so Enoch and, and Elijah are two. In fact, there's only two men that never physically saw death. Now, we can't call these a resurrection since they didn't actually die, but there is proof that the faithful escaped death. That's really what the idea of resurrection is. These are two who literally never saw physical death. <laughs> it is uh, strange that even Jesus himself had to face physical death while these men did not. So uh, even Jesus had to face physical death to take care of the, the weight that was on our shoulders. But Enoch and Elijah did not. So in Genesis 5, we have this description of Enoch as one who walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's in Genesis 5, 24. We're told in Hebrews 11 that he was the friend of God, that by faith he had walked with God. And then we're told of Elijah that in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 111, that he was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. So the faithful don't see death. Now that's going to be a concept that will come up again in the New Testament. Then, of course, you have these two women's sons. In fact, Hebrews 11, making reference to that, women received their dead, raised to life again. We know at least of two of those accounts, which are others that happened in the time of Jesus, but under the law and prophets. Elijah in Zarephath. I want to read this text because I think it's interesting to see that in this case, her faith was bolstered. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. So there's a widow that Elijah's been staying with and her son ends up dying. It happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. And so her faith was bolstered. She'd already been keeping a room for him. She'd already believed, but now she's got absolute proof. God bolstered her faith through this resurrection of her son. Now, it was a temporary resurrection. He's going to die again at some point, but he brought her son back to life. That's not a small thing. And of course, then Elisha does this later in Shunem, in 2 Kings chapter 4. And this time, he confirms the faith. The first one was a bolstering of a faith that was starting to wane, perhaps. In this case, it's a confirmation. And I want to uh, think about the difference. I think it's interesting. Second, uh, Second Kings 4, starting at verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind him. 
uh, behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her and when she came in, he said, pick up your son. She went in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. So there's a resurrection here. But it's interesting, the situation of her before this. When she's been looking for Elisha, she's been walking up and down through the country after her son's death saying, it is well, it is well, it's okay. Even when Elisha finally comes out to her, she tells him it is well, but he can see that she has anguish in her heart. So he goes out and asks her what's going on. And then she explains what has happened. She fully believed that it was going to be well. Perhaps she remembered the story of what happened with Elijah and the other woman. But at any rate, she has some hope in a possibility of resurrection and it confirms her faith. And so in Hebrews 11.35, some women by faith received their, their sons to, to life again. Others refused the salvation of their physical lives. They didn't accept deliverance, even in torture, that they might obtain a better resurrection. One where you're not going to have to die ever again. That's something new. But that's all done by faith, a bolstered faith, a confirmed faith. King David, you'll remember when uh, Bathsheba's child with him, the first child, uh, died. He says, well, uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after many days of mourning, I want to make sure I get the, the quote right here. 2 Samuel chapter 12, after they come to him finally and ask why he's been fasting all this time, but now he's ready to go eat, Verse 22 of 2 Samuel 15, he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I shall go to him? <laughs> David didn't say, I shall go to the grave. I'm going to go be with that child. He's thinking of something alive, some kind of living after death, some kind of hope after death. We really see that much more clearly in his prophetic vision in the Psalms. And I really want to just take a moment to look at a few of these verses where you see very clearly that David has a hope beyond this physical life. For example, Psalm 49, starting at verse 13. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. So while death is feasting on the unrighteous, David, who's seeing himself as righteous here, understands he's going to be received from the power, redeemed from the power of the grave. Death's not going to have dominion over him. In fact, that'll be exactly what he says in the last psalm we'll look at. But quickly, Psalm 23 and verse 6. This is one that a lot of people have memorized. Psalm 23 and verse 6. This is the psalm about the Lord is my shepherd. But verse 6, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I'm going to live until those days are cut off. But I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> so there's a dwelling. There's a living after the physical life is cut off. And finally, a, a psalm that's uh, attributed also to Jesus later. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. 
My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So I'm going to die. I'm going to be put in the grave, but in hope, because I'm not going to stay there. And that's why the kings, the good kings, were buried together. They were gathered to their fathers. They were all together in this rejoicing and hope of what was to come after death, uh, after their physical death. This is, not, uh, this is in the New Testament register, but it's in the Old Testament period, if you will. This is before Jesus establishes the new covenant. Martha, who only had the Old Testament to work from, at least had some understanding of this foreshadowing of the hope of resurrection. In John chapter 11, as Jesus goes to her, she not only believed that if he had been there, he could have spared Lazarus from dying, but she says, well, I know that in the resurrection he'll live again. And Jesus then says, well, I am the resurrection and the life. She had some hope in resurrection. How is that possible? Well, it's because she knew the Old Testament. Look at all the hope of resurrection we've seen from the patriarchs and from the law and the prophets. And then, of course, in the New Testament, there's no doubts. The resurrection of Christ confirms that God has the power to resurrect. We've already seen it in a simple sense in bringing people back to life. But now he brings Jesus back to life eternally. He's the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Let's turn there because this, this passage is so beautiful. And it begins to connect the importance of why we're talking about this. We were talking about the Thessalonian, 1 and 2 Thessalonian letters today in class, and how many of them were being persecuted to death. And they were fearful that maybe they had lost the blessing that was to come. They had lost the promise. Those who had died before Christ's coming wouldn't be able to be with Christ. And the point that Paul was making is, well, the hope is in resurrection. <laughs> If they died with Christ, they're certainly going to live with Christ for eternity. You shouldn't be worried about those who have gone on. You must remain faithful. So Christ proves the resurrection by dying and then coming back to life in the front of many witnesses. Let's uh, look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul's argument about the gospel. He says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all He was seen by me also as by one born out of due time." There are lots of witnesses to the resurrection. Lots and lots. Paul even says, there's at least 500. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. And you've got all of us who've seen him. There is proof of true resurrection in Jesus at a time when so many could have witnessed it. Well, Paul says that that's first fruits. That's an important word among the Jews, and it ought to be among us as well who know the Bible. The idea is when the first crops come up, it's proof there's more coming. The soil's fertile, the seeds took. And so Jesus is the proof that other fruit just like him is coming. And that's Paul's argument starting at verse 12 in, in 1 Corinthians 15. They were starting to doubt the resurrection. Some had denied, some had said it was already passed, and they were starting to doubt. And Paul says, the resurrection is the anchor of your hope. <laughs> if you lose hope and faith in the resurrection, then your faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. And that's where he says, starting at verse 12, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead... How does some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not raise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What a shame that an unfortunate majority of those who claim to believe in the Lord are considering only what he can do for them in this life. That, that's a really a pitiable type of living. They don't truly believe in the resurrection. They just kind of believe in him as some kind of a, of a person who made some good sayings. Kind of like the Buddha. Kind of like some Confucius of the modern age. And, and so let's just say the good things that Jesus said. We don't really have to believe in the resurrection. Yes, you do. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to believe in the resurrection. Because Christ is the first fruits. And he's offering that hope to all of us if we're willing to believe in the power that he has. I appreciate so much the last song we sang. What, I've never sang that before. What a, what a gorgeous sentiment. That's exactly what the Bible teaches, that God has proved resurrection in Christ, and he's helped us then to overcome fear of death. In fact, that's the reason this is so important. The apostles counted on the resurrection. They would not have done the work they did that took them to their deaths if they weren't counting on the resurrection. And we can't serve Christ faithfully without counting on it. The resurrection empowers action. Hebrews 11.35, they rejected deliverance so that they could obtain a better resurrection. They didn't want to be brought back to life to live here in this physical place. They knew that if they were tortured to death for their faith, that they had a much better reward. A resurrection for eternity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's the way Paul describes their suffering. He started out the letter saying they despaired even of life, but God who grants life who is merciful to them, brought them through their trials. But here's the way he describes it in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're carrying about the gospel, but we're in these broken earthen jars. And I mean, they're fragile and they're going to be beaten and abused. But we've got this treasure. We're hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Think about the power behind what Paul is saying right there. <laughs> because we know that resurrection is a fact. We face death every time we preach. <laughs> and we do that because you hearing us preach can gain life. <laughs> You'll accept the resurrection. And even if we're killed, we have the hope of coming back in Christ's presence. <laughs> and so... The resurrection empowers action. If you don't believe in the hope of resurrection, you're going to be afraid to announce your faith. You're going to be afraid to stand up for what you believe if you don't believe in the end result of it, that you escape death. You'll be afraid to face up to sin and to overcome evil. It's not worth it. If I have to give up everything and then there's nothing in return, why, why do that? 
That's the accusation sometimes. I remember when I was an atheist, I came to this concluding point that even if I am right and atheism is correct, that I don't really gain that much in this life by believing in that. But if I'm wrong, an eternity cast from the presence of the Lord, that's an awful lot to gamble on. Or an eternity in His presence is an awful lot to gain if that's right. So I began to weigh that as I'm looking at this gospel argument presented. And that's exactly where John and others stood. They saw the truth of resurrection. And so 1 John 5 verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The world's not our realm. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Because as Paul said, faith is based in the resurrection of Christ. And then he says in verse 13, 1 John 5, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life, resurrection, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I want you to think about all those who weren't the apostles, who didn't walk with Jesus and see him while he was alive, who are blessed, as Jesus said to Thomas, because they haven't seen and yet believed. What did they have to gain? Eternal life. How absurd to believe in someone who came and says, I've got the power of life, but he's dead. You're preaching a dead man to me? No. Paul is preaching life in the one who died and resurrected. And he's gone on now. He's not with us physically anymore. But he resurrected, and there's lots of proof of that. We've shown that through here. And so that's why Christianity makes sense. It's why Buddhism and some of the others don't. I think I told you I was interrogated pretty heavily after my conversion by some of my college friends. And they would say, why would you believe in Jesus of all people? I don't know what the hatred is against Jesus. But my answer was, he's the only one that walked away from death. Buddha died and he's still dead. Confucius, all these other great thinkers, they're all still dead. But Jesus, he overcame the grave. And if he knows how to do that, and he's teaching me how to do it, he's the one I'm going to listen to. That's what our hope is to face up to sin and overcome evil. Remember that he came, really, so that we could live without fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, it's the fear of death that's held us prisoner so long. Hebrews chapter 2, he overcame that by the resurrection. And as much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We're supposed to be freed by the power of the resurrection. Know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's what Paul was teaching the Thessalonians. Don't worry about all the persecution. If you die in your service to the Lord, there's something so much better. It is a righteous thing for God to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who persecute you. And that's exactly what we have, that the apostles counted on that gave them the courage to preach. Interestingly enough, the resurrection is still very visible in what we do as we serve the Lord. In Romans chapter 6, we learn that baptism perfectly pictures the resurrection. <laughs> Starting at verse 3, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we all show also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Baptism perfectly pictures a resurrection. When we're buried and rise again. 
And as we just participated in the Lord's Supper, it proclaims a resurrection. I love the language in 1 Corinthians 11 because it's so subtle and yet talks about resurrection. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. <laughs> That's proclaiming resurrection. You don't just think, well, he's dead. Let's just proclaim the fact that he died. No, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. We're participants in his death because we're also participants in his resurrection. And that's what we're proclaiming every Lord's Day as we take the Lord's Supper together. Resurrection is all throughout the Bible. And it's such an important theme. And it's such an important thing for us to be thinking about. As we're coming into the new year, people are thinking about new beginnings. People are thinking about what can I be doing differently? What can I be doing to change what I was from last year? In essence, we have an, an opportunity to renew ourselves every single day. But certainly at the beginnings of years, we begin to think about what can I do this year that'll be new, that'll show the difference in my character. Well, the first thing you can think about is being united with Christ in the likeness of his death through baptism. If you haven't done that, you haven't begun the process. You have no hope of the real resurrection. But God would have us to change our lives. He would change and transform us through the power of his gospel. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. And that's why that whole chapter shows how people lived by faith and were pleasing to him. The patriarchs gained their, uh, their justification through their faith. And so can we. But the fact is a day of resurrection is coming for the just and for the unjust. If you're not a Christian, what will be the rest of your story? If you're not a Christian, what's going to be written of you after this physical life is over? Nothing. What purpose have you served after this physical life is over if you're not a Christian? It's been a waste. If your hope is in this life only, even if that hope is in some way in Christ, you're of all men the most pitiable. You're going to suffer for Christ without the hope of resurrection. Resurrection, God emphasizes from the very moment that death first comes into the story. There's a reason for that. His desire for you is for life. You think about Jesus offering the Lord's Supper and he's saying, I'm going to partake of this with you new in the kingdom of my Father. He knew he was heading to his death, and yet he's proclaiming life for them and his life after death for them. What a blessing that we have the hope of resurrection to look forward to. And I'm so grateful I share in that hope with you. If you're not a Christian, today's the day to die with Christ, to be buried with him in baptism, and to rise to a new life. To do that, you've got to confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You've got to be repentant of your sins and come forward and have those washed away in baptism. Then the new life can begin. If you're already a Christian and the resurrection hasn't been your hope, you haven't lived your life in such a way that you're looking forward to serving here with all you have, to be with him there with all you have, then may we encourage you to think about that today. If you have a need for a confession, if you have a need for us to encourage you and hold up your hands as you, as you serve, we want to help you do that. Whatever that need is, make it known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage you and come forward if you need to.